afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you tonight to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We're looking at lesson number nine, and the exciting news tonight is we're going to be in both Daniel and the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight we need your help. We need guidance and wisdom. We also need to know what you need us to know about the last day events. Thank you for Daniel chapter 7. May your Holy Spirit guide our minds and bless us and lead us into all truth tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our topic tonight is an exciting one. It's Daniel chapter 7, the four beasts and the little horn power. Would you join me at the top of our lesson guides in page two? In lesson seven, we discovered that the book of Revelation predicted the rise of modern spiritual Babylon that would do some of the same things that ancient Babylon did. Spiritual Babylon would mix paganism with the worship of God and would persecute God's people who would refuse to accept this combination of paganism and Christianity. Since the Bible had foretold that a false religious system would arise, every sincere Christian should make certain that he tests every religious movement by the Bible and the Bible only. So we cannot afford to trust what religious leaders may say, what well-meaning individuals may say, but we can trust the word of God only. Remember that Revelation indicates that there are many God-fearing people in Babylon. And what does God say to them? He sends them a special message. Come out of her, my people, Revelation 18.4. It's God's people who are called out of Babylon. In this lesson, we'll be dealing with a very sensitive yet important and crucial subject. We will let the Bible identify for us this great apostate system that has mixed paganism and Christianity together. Some who study this lesson may be hurt by learning this identity. Please remember there's no malice intended to anyone belonging to any religious system because God is not speaking about individuals, but he's speaking about the system itself. God loves every individual who may have become entangled in false teachings. In love, he sends them the message to come out of Babylon. God loves every individual who may have become entangled. And so he sends them the message to come out. And it's only because of God's great love and concern for us that he's warned us so explicitly about religious systems. God does not want us to be deceived because truth can be painful at times, but deception is even more painful in the end. With eternity at stake, our only safety is to rely not on what man says, but on what God says in his holy word, the Bible. 
I have five theme questions for you tonight. What do beasts represent in Daniel 7? Where does the little horn power come from? Who is the first beast of Revelation 13? Is this a message directed to RCs? And number five, what is the main point of Daniel chapter 7? So tonight we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7 and we start now the prophetic section. I want you to just know that if you're just cruising along with us and joining us every night, I love that. But if you actually prepare the lesson yourself, then you will get a greater blessing. And so we're going to be going into Daniel's chapter 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. And it's sort of like we're going in hard, fast and deep. And so you will understand a lot better if you've been able to do the homework and understand yourself through prayer and Bible study, the six chapters of the prophecies of Daniel. Would you join me um, on page two, halfway down? Our first heading is the four beasts. Question one. How many beasts did Daniel see coming up out of the sea? We go to Daniel 7, 1 to 3. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Friends, we're going back in time to the first year of King Belshazzar. And so he co-reigned with his father, Nabonidus, starting in 553 and finished in 539 BC when the Babylonian kingdom was finished and the silver kingdom of Medo-Persia took over. Now, what's fascinating here tonight is that Daniel was the one who's actually having the dream, not the king. And so Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Verse two, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Each was different from the other. So Daniel's very clear. There's four and four only beasts that come up out of the sea. Question two, what does the sea represent? In Revelation 17, 15, the waters which you saw, John the Revelator writes, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. There's our answer. The answer is peoples and nations. This is also multitudes and language groups. So if a beast comes out of the sea, it always means it comes out of a populated area. If we should find a beast in Revelation, and we will later in the series, that comes out of the land, that means it comes out of an uninhabited or sparsely populated area. Number three, what do the four beasts represent? In Daniel 7, we're looking at verse 17 and 23. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. And the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. So beasts stand for in prophecy, they're symbols that stand for four kings or four kingdoms. Have a look at the screen as I read the note at the bottom of page two. In Daniel 2, four kingdoms are represented by the various metals of the great image. The head of gold is Babylon, the breast and arms are silver, Medo-Persia, the belly and thighs of brass is Greece, and the legs of iron is Rome. The feet are part of iron and part of clay, the ten divisions of the Roman Empire. Now have a look at the next screen. Daniel 7 builds on what Daniel 2 revealed using different symbols to portray the same four empires and adding details about the behavior of each of these powers. Now, I'm just gonna ask you on the screen who we're dealing with tonight. We're dealing with a winged lion, a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, a four-headed flying leopard, and a nondescript beast, which is a composite of all of these kingdoms that you see on the screen. 
And then at the top of the page, the note says, now a new power, the little horn, is introduced in Daniel chapter 7. Friends, I just want to remind you tonight that God has chosen animals or mascots or symbols of these nations to give us extra details that cannot be deduced by a static metal man because the animals have, um, you know, they have characteristics and they have um, uh, just God is painting a fresh picture for us and matches them to their respective kingdoms. Question number four, what beast did God choose to represent the kingdom of Babylon? I think you know the answer from previous lessons. The first was like a lion, and this lion had eagle's wings. Daniel writes, I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So the answer is the beast is a lion. Just as gold, the choices of metals, was chosen to represent Babylon, so the king of beasts, the lion, represents Babylon in Daniel 7. The prophecy begins where the prophet is living since Daniel lived in ancient Babylon. It's logical to begin the prophecy with, ba with Babylon. So friends, just have a look at the screen. I want to ask you, do you think the lion is a good symbol of Babylon? Well, the ancient Assyrians, the Babylonians, the kings and leaders love to hunt lions. And so it is a very, very good symbol for the empire of Babylonia. Some of you who are cooks will remember lion of what dates? Yes, lion of Babylon dates. Just uh, two weeks ago, we took you on a tour of Babylon and there is the lion of Babylon in the actual ruins of uh, ancient Babylon there in Iraq and you remember the Lion of Babylon here depicts crouching over a man because no man or nation could stand against the kingdom of Babylon. These are lions on the processional way in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin in Germany and if we go and have a close-up of one of these lions let's have a look at him what can we see? Can you see an inverted wing there in the lion's mane? Friends, once again, the lion is a very, very good representation of the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, we could say it's God perfect. So this kingdom started off strong under Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus, but then it lost its lion power. It became not lion-hearted, but man-hearted. It now stands on its feet. Um, on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So it's no longer lion-hearted, it's man-hearted. And this represents the kingdom of uh, Babylonia under uh, King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar, of course, was a very weak king. And of course, in his time, mene, mene, tekel, or parson, we know at that time, the kingdom was overthrown. Well, we're finally getting to question five, aren't we? <laughs> What animal represents the second world empire of Medo-Persia in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5? And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise and devour much flesh. Friends, would you be surprised to know that bears used to live in ancient Media in the area of the Medes and the Persians? Today, that area would be Iran. So here we have the two arms of Medo-Persia represented by the two 
um, paws of the bear and the bear raised up on one side representing firstly the Medes were strong, then the Persians were strong. Notice the area they conquered in the red on the map. This kingdom lasts about 200 years. Most kingdoms only last 200 years. So anything that lasts over a thousand years is a very, very remarkable and strong power. Well, what about the three ribs? Medo-Persia obviously conquered Babylon. That was one of the ribs. Who were the other two? Well, the other ribs were Lydia, which is ancient Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And then, of course, there's Babylonia. And thirdly, there's Egypt. So the three ribs in its mouth represent those three nations that overthrew Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. I don't think that was given to you in the lesson. We're in question six, what animal represents the third kingdom, which is Greece? After this, in verse six, Daniel writes, I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. So I'm asking you tonight, if you think that a lion was fast with two wings, let's call that a V8, what would you call a four-headed flying leopard? I would say for those of you who love cars, that this kingdom of Greece is absolutely turbocharged. And so here we have a four-headed flying leopard. And so we have this beast representing the belly and thighs of brass in the metal man. Well, question seven, how many heads did the leopard have? We already discovered the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Friends, the detail that God goes to in these uh, symbols, these motifs, these mascots is absolutely incredible. And if this beast has four heads, those four heads stand for some sort of leaderships. And so it has four heads. I'm going to give you more on that now. The four heads of the leopard represent the four divisions of the Grecian Empire at the death of Alexander the Great. Rather than one power taking over, the kingdom was divided amongst his four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, who ruled over the kingdoms of Macedonia, Thrace, Egypt, and Syria. So I've got a map for you here. Over there in Athens on the left was Cassander. He was in the west, and that was the kingdom of Macedonia above him. Lysimachus in the east of him, and that was Thrace. Seleucus is that massive area. Uh, to the north of Jerusalem, all countries are measured as to how they line up with their uh, direction to God's people in Jerusalem. That's where the Bible is centered, of course. So Seleucus is to the north and the northeast, that's Syria. And then below Jerusalem to the kingdom of the south is Ptolemy. Ptolemy, uh, the general Ptolemy took that over. And some of you might remember in your history books that some of the pharaohs were known as the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies was there family name. Question number eight, the fourth beast representing pagan. What does pagan mean? Secular, non-religious. The fourth beast representing pagan or secular Rome is identified by what kind of teeth? Daniel 7, 7. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. So friends, the fourth beast is the power that is represented by iron because iron is so strong and impermeable. Note the similarity between the legs of iron in Daniel 2 and the iron teeth in Daniel 7, indicating that both the beast and the legs represent the iron monarchy of Rome. Well, how many horns did the fourth beast have in Daniel 7, 7? 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. Friends, this is going to bring back to your memory the 10 toes of Daniel 2. The 10 horns represent the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire, and we've covered their identity back in lesson number four. So friends, have a look on the screen. This is the feet and the kingdom of iron and clay, the 10 toes of the 10 nations of Europe. They began to reign at the end of the Roman Empire in 476 AD to the present time. And so there are the 10 nations of Europe. Notice that Daniel never predicted a fifth world empire. That would be logical, a fifth world empire. He only said that there would be 10 toes to follow. And that's very interesting. No more world empires. Number 10, would you join me at the bottom of page three and then over page three? What did Daniel see arising in the midst of the 10 horns? We're going to Daniel chapter seven, verse eight. Daniel said, and I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one. Coming up among them, that's the other horns, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. That's a remarkable verse. There's uh, probably 10 sermons just in that one verse. What did Daniel see arising in the midst of the 10 horns? The answer is that you've written on your lesson guides, a little horn power. Friends, here is a power not mentioned in Daniel 2. Daniel's description of the work of the little horn is a new area not mentioned before. And before we go on to discover the identifying marks of the little horn, I want to show you a chart I've put up on the screen to summarize where we've been. In Daniel 2, Babylon's represented by gold. In Daniel 7, Babylon's represented by a lion. In Daniel 2, Medo-Persia's represented by the kingdom of silver. In Daniel 7, by a bear. Greece is represented by bronze and the metal man, but in Daniel 7, a leopard represents the kingdom of Greece. Rome is shown by the iron nation, uh, the metal of iron, which was used in their swords and their shields and their spears. And in Daniel 7, it is a dragon. A divided Rome uh, breaks up in 476 AD, shown by the iron and clay and the 10 toes. This is also paralleled in Daniel 7 by 10 horns. Now look, in Daniel chapter 2, there's no little horn power. Remember what I said in the beginning, God takes us from, um, you know, uh, close up right through to wide angle or wide angle into close up. And so we're now getting close up with sort of a telephoto view. And so in Daniel 7, we're given the extra detail of a little horn power. This little horn power is going to rule and reign. Let's find out a little bit more about it halfway down page four. The identification marks of the little horn power. Question 11 lists the identifying marks of the little horn as they appear throughout Daniel chapter seven. Friends, the, real, the re reason we have to do this tonight is to be able to identify who this little horn power is and ultimately who this beast power is. And later on in one of our lessons, we'll be dealing with the mark of the beast. Many people speculate on what's the mark of the beast, but they don't stop to try and work out who is the beast. Isn't that an important point? How can we work out what the mark of the beast is if we don't know what the beast power is and who it is? So here are multi-points we're going to learn tonight to find out who the little horn power is. So 
in section A, we're going to go to verse 8. We're looking for something about he came up, something, a missing word, and then the ten horns. Daniel writes in Daniel 7, 8, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them. There's our answer. Notice that the little horn comes up amongst the other horns. Friends, it's very important to see the origin here of the little horn power because the identity of the little horn power can be a real surprise or a shock to people. Notice that he comes up somewhere amongst the other 10 horns in Europe. This is the rise of a European power. Let me share the note. The Roman Empire divided into 10 parts by AD 476. Since the little horn emerges to greatness among these 10 divisions, he would have to become a major power after the breakup of the Roman Empire. Thus, we should look for the rise of the little horn in Western Europe after the date AD 476. What's that date? If you're not sure, that's the end, the official end date of the pagan Roman Empire. Well, let's go to part B of question 11. We've got to go to verse 8, verse 20 and 24. Something about the little horn plucked out, something of the horns. Daniel 7, 8, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So the answer is three. And so there is our answer. I'm not going to take time to go to verse 20 and 24. I'm sure you did that for homework. The note at the top of page five, since only seven of the original 10 divisions of the Roman Empire are still in existence in Europe today, in other words, the horns, obviously the little horn power has already arisen in Western Europe. So friends, you know the Alamanni were the Germans, the Burgundians, the Swiss, the Franks, the French, the Lombards, the Italians, the Anglo-Saxons became the English. We get English from the Anglo. The Suevi were the Portuguese, the Visigoths, the Spanish. But of course, this little horn power took out three powers that opposed it. And they were the Heruli, the Vandals and the Ostrogoths who were made extinct. And so the note was there, there they are. And so since only seven of the original 10 horns of the divisions of the Roman Empire are still in existence today, obviously the little horn power has already arisen in Western Europe. Let's go to part C. We're going to verse eight. He had a something like the eyes of a something. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so he had eyes like the eyes of a man. This is re remarkable, isn't it? It's like there is a man at the head of this power. So none of the other uh, horns can speak. They don't have human characteristics, but this horn has human characteristics and a man is named as the head of this power. Part D, where to go to verse eight and 25, he had a mouth speaking something words against the most high. Daniel 7, 8, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Friends, scripture has mentioned this twice. This is very, very significant. He had a mouth speaking pompous words. What does pompous mean? Friends, if you look up the dictionary, it means self-important. It means opinionated. It means an exaggerated uh, love and display of pomp and ceremonies. Um, it's interesting the King James uses the word great words. This power would blaspheme God. Remember, Belshazzar blasphemed God when he mixed paganism with the worship of God. 
Obviously, this power would likewise blaspheme God by mixing paganism with the worship of God. I guess some of you tonight can see that in mixing paganism with Christianity, we have an upside down cross. And that is an anti-Christian symbol loved by Satanists. Let's go to part E. We're looking at the identifying marks of the little horn power. We're looking at part E or number five. We're looking at verses 21 and 25. He was making what against the saints? Daniel says in verse 21 of Daniel 7, I was watching and the same horn was making what? War against the saints and prevailing against them. He was winning against God's people. Verse 21, he shall persecute. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Friends, the King James there, there says rub out. He will wear out or wear down or rub out. That's the meaning of persecute the saints of the Most High. And so this power, whoever it is, is makes war against God's true people. Just like ancient Babylon, the little horn would persecute those who disagreed with its presumptuous claims. It would attempt to destroy the saints of God. Friends, notice on the screen, Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar, tried to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Belshazzar tried to kill Daniel and throw him in the lion's den, which he did. I want to tell you tonight that Daniel is my hero. I want to say to all the kids out there, maybe some movie stars or soccer stars are your heroes, football stars, league stars, AFL stars. I want to tell you that Daniel's my hero. You know why? Because he was a man of God. He was a man of principle. He was a man of integrity. And he made a stand for God, though the heavens fall, come what may. And I'm asking myself tonight, am I like Daniel? I want to ask you, are you like Daniel? Do you have a heart that will stand for God and his truth, no matter whatever comes at you? You can if you find yourself in God's word every day and you are strong in prayer. God bless you as you continue on that journey and some of you start that journey in the morning. All right, let's have a look at part F. He shall intend to something, God's times and laws, verse 25. The New King James says, he shall speak pompous words. I've just inserted in there the King James Version which is a great study Bible. The King James Version says that he will speak great words against the Most High, that he shall persecute the saints of the Most High and the little horn power shall intend. The King James says, think. He thinks he can change God's times and laws. So friends, what is our answer? Just before we go there, notice the King James says that he thinks he changes God's times and laws, but he doesn't change God's times and laws because the laws are not changed in heaven, even if he changes them down here on earth. It's an earthly change. He intends to change God's law. He thinks he changes God's law. We're halfway down page five. Changing God's law is unthinkable. And yet this great power would think that it could actually change God's law. Incredible, isn't it? So we're looking at the identifying marks, the little horn. We're trying to work out who it is. In verse 25, he shall be given into uh, hand for something and something and something a time. Then shall the saints be given into his hand, whose hand? The little horn power's hand for a time and times and half a time. There's our answer. The answer is a time and times and half a time. Friends, while you're writing that in or reflecting on, I've got a question for you. Why did God put these time periods into code? 
Why did he put these time periods in the code? Can I put this to you? If the time periods had not been written in code, in three different codes that meant the same amount of time, um, I don't believe the Bible would have survived today because it would have made it too obvious who the power was and possibly God's word might have been done away with. Something for you to think about and study some more. We've actually made it to question 12. What other biblical expressions are used to describe the time of the reign of the little horn power? So we're now looking at the codes for the time. We're going to go to Revelation 12, 14. We're going to go to Revelation 13, 5. And then we're going to go to Revelation 12, 6 and find the time code is split into three different segments and three different ways. I'd love to explain Revelation 12, but we've got a whole lesson on it, so I will resist the temptation. But the woman was given two wings. This woman is a virgin, a pure church. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So Satan was seeking to destroy God's true church and she was going to be hidden for a time, times and half a time. Let's jump into Revelation 13.5. It says here that the first beast of Revelation 13.5, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. This shows you it's not a secular power. It's a what? It's a religious power. And he was given authority to continue for how many months? Here's our answer. 42 months. So we have time, times, and half a time, and now we have 42 months. Well, what is this time period really? We go to Revelation 12 and verse 6. Then the woman, the pure church, the virgin, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Friends, I'd love you to tell you the story about when I went to the Waldensian Valleys, and this is illustrated here. During the Dark Ages, the Waldensies hid out there from a certain power that was trying to destroy them. I have to stop it there. That'll be a future lesson. And so we are reading about that the true church was hiding out in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. God would feed her and sustain her there 1,260 days. So friends, there are the time periods. This period is referred to in the scriptures as a time, times and dividing of times. Time, times and half a time and 42 months and 1260 days. Now I've color coded those for you on the screen. The colors all show the same derivatives. 42 months in orange, time, times and half a time in yellow and the 1260 days in blue. I go back to the note, we're at the bottom of page five in our lesson guide. Obviously they should all equal the same time period and they do. 42 months times 30 days in a month would equal 1260 days. A time would equal 360 days, a Jewish year. So I'm just going to stop there. Some of you are going to say, well, there's, there's not 30 days in a month. Well, the Jews calculated their calendars on a 30-day month. So that's where 12 times 30 comes from. The 360 comes from that. So a time would equal 360 days, which is a Jewish year. Two times would equal 720 days, two years, and half a time would be half a year or 180 days, which totals 1,260 days. Thus, a little horn power would rule over the minds of men for how long? For 1,260 days. Remember, in Bible prophecy, a day equals one literal year. 
There are the texts for that on the screen. If you're unsure of that principle, you can look them up as equal 46 and numbers 1434. We'll be looking that up in a few more lessons time. Thus, the little horn power is to rule for how long? For not just 1260 days, but 1260 literal years. Friends, that should make it easy to identify the little horn power. Would you come over the page? We've already covered the illustration at the top of the page and we're moving into our next heading. In fact, we're moving into our last heading. The Little Horn and the Beast of Revelation 13. Wow, this is exciting. The book of Revelation also reveals the little horn power under different symbolism. In fact, the Beast of Revelation 13 and the Little Horn of Daniel 7 refer to what? The same power. So we turn to the New Testament book of Revelation for more information. Question 13. List the identifying marks of the beast of Revelation 13. Friends, where are we? We are in Revelation 13. Who's writing it? Not Daniel. But here is a picture of John the Revelator. Who is this John the Revelator? John who wrote Revelation. Well, here he is on the Isle of Patmos writing the book of Revelation. And he was a disciple of Jesus who was very, very young at the time. And therefore, by the end of the first century, John was uh, locked up on that island of Patmos as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And God gives him that time out like he gave Paul in the prison in Rome. He gives John time out to write down the visions that God gives. And that's where we got the book of Revelation from. List the identifying marks of the first beast of Revelation 13. We're going to Revelation 13 too, but I have to take you back to verse 1 and we're not going to understand verse 2 and the rest of the chapter. Who is the subject of Revelation 13.1? Now, if you didn't do the lesson thoroughly, you might have missed Revelation 13.1. So please look in the screen. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Ah, sea, peoples, right? And I saw a beast, kingdom or king, rising up out of the sea. Do you understand now how we can understand and interpret the scripture? This beast had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now possibly you didn't read this, but somebody's going to ask me who were the seven heads. The seven heads were the seven civilizations, beginning with Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, you'll know the rest now, Medo-Persia, then Greece, then what? Rome, but it was pagan Rome, and then pagan Rome was followed by papal Rome. So this beast has seven heads, it has 10 horns. There's the 10 nations of Europe, tells you where it comes from. And on his horns were 10 crowns. So let me ask you, is this beast a republic or is it a monarchy? Is it a republic like America with no queens and kings? Or is it, does the beast have crowns on? Therefore, it is dealing with monarchies, kings and queens. The answer is obvious, isn't it? And notice on his head, there would be a blasphemous name. Here's where our answer is found in verse 2. Now the beast, this first beast of Revelation 13, which I saw was like a leopard. So some of him is like Greece and his feet were like the feet of a bear. And so some of him is like Medo-Persia and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And so some of him is like Babylon. So friends, the elements of Greece, Medo-Persia and Babylon, pagan elements, the worship of the spirit world and gods and uh, worship of images and the black arts this all comes in to this first beast power we're in revelation 13 2 looking for the answer 
the dragon. Here's our answer. Who gave him his power, his throne and great authority? The answer is the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. Who is the dragon? The dragon represents the devil. In Revelation 12, 9, it's on the screen. No matter what this power claims, the source of its authority and power is none other than Satan himself. This is pretty serious, isn't it? And so, friends, are we going to be worshipping the Creator, according to Revelation 14, 7? Or are we going to be tricked into worshipping the beast and receiving his mark that we find written in Revelation 14, 9? I'm asking you tonight to think that question through very, very carefully. We're in question 13, part B. We've been asked to look at Revelation 13, verse 3. One of his heads as if it had been mortally something. John writes, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So one of his heads was as if it had been mortally wounded. Friends, what's remarkable is that the beast of Revelation 13, the first beast, actually seems to die and then be resurrected after about 129 or 130 years. And so this first beast, this beast power, that is the same power that is prefigured in Daniel chapter 7. This is mimicking the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? Let's go to the third point. We're in Revelation 13, 3. The deadly wound was something and all the world marveled and followed the beast. His deadly wound was healed. We just read it. His deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled. I think the King James says, and all the world wondered. They marveled. They were just in awe of this beast power. This power would receive a deadly wound, but amazingly it would recover. And the world would then follow this power. Point number four is Revelation 13 verse four. What are we looking for? They something the beast. So they worship the dragon which gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Friends, why are the people marveling over the beast? Why? Because he has become resurrected. He's come back into power against all the odds. That's what they're saying. And so they worship the beast. Friends, this power is a power that receives the worship of men. It is therefore a religious power. It's not a secular, it's not Russia. Russia is an atheistic power. This power receives worship. And so this is a very, very important point. Let's go to E. We're going to Revelation 13, 5 and 6. He speaks great things and something. And the first beast was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. See, it's a religious power. It's doing religious things, not secular or pagan things. And this power was given authority to continue for 42 months. Let's jump to verse 6. We're going to learn it again. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, God's tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. There's our answer. He speaks great things and blasphemies. Like Daniel's little horn, this power blasphemes God. 
the next point F in Revelation 13 verse 5, he continues 42 something. I think you know the answer to that if you've got a good memory. And he was given authority to continue for 42 what? Yes, 42 months. There's the code. The time code is put back in. So friends, the time code is very important. This power reigns the same time that Daniel's little horn reigns. It's a period of 1260 days or 1260 years. And we're suggesting those are the dates there on the screen, even though we haven't proved it yet, but we'll do that when we get to the blue exhibit. After we finish this program, we'll be going through that. Question 13, list the identifying marks of the beast of Revelation 13. Revelation 13 verse seven, he would make something with the saints. Revelation 13, 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him, the first beast, over every tribe, tongue and nation. Friends, it's incredible, isn't it? This power would make war. He would persecute, he'd rub out God's saints. In Daniel 7, 25, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Notice the parallel between these two beasts, these two powers. The note says, notice again the similarity to Daniel 7.25, that he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. All right, list the identifying marks of the beast in Revelation 13.8, the whole world something him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, this is a very serious charge. These people who will knowingly worship the beast because they will find out who he is, when they knowingly worship the beast and they know what they're doing, then their names are not written in the name of the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life. And so the whole world seems to worship the beast. And now he has a number. If we cannot work out who the beast power is, he has a number. List the identifying marks of the beast of Revelation 13. Point I, Revelation 13, 18, his number equals something. Revelation 13, 18, last verse in chapter 18. Sorry, last verse in chapter 13 of Revelation. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So this is important that we know who the beast is. For it is the number of who? Ah, it's interesting, isn't it? The number of a man. See the linking here with a little horn power? His number is 666. Well, that number has received a lot of publicity over the last few years and the world wonders over what this stands for. Friends, the note says just a quick glance at these identifying marks makes it very clear that Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 are talking about exactly the same power. Friends, usually at this point of the lesson, I go to the exhibit, the blue exhibit, but we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to go on and finish the lesson and then we'll do the exhibit afterwards. Question 14, what will ultimately happen to the little horn power, Daniel 7.26? We go back into Daniel. What did Daniel write? But the court shall be seated. This is speaking about the heavenly court as, I, I've, as I've illustrated there for you. So the heavenly court in heaven shall be seated and they shall take away the little horn power's dominion, his rulership, his power 
to consume and destroy his power and his rule and his reign for how long? Amen. Let all the people say forever. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Friends, that's good news. This modern spiritual Babylon will ultimately come under the judgment of God and will be destroyed. Daniel is very clear that this power will ultimately come to its end at the second coming of Christ. How important then that we not be deceived by this power. Question 15, how did Daniel feel about this revelation in Daniel 7.28? We're looking for the words, my thoughts greatly something me. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed. His face dropped, but I kept the matter in my heart. My thoughts greatly troubled me. Daniel was deeply disturbed by this revelation. Likewise, you might be disturbed by the things revealed in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Remember that everything written here has been written in love. God does not want anyone to be deceived by this great delusion that takes the whole world captive. That's why in mercy he sent the warnings of Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. Disturbing and shocking as this revelation may be, God sends it to us because he loves us so much. Friends, thank God for his love, his grace and his mercy, because sometimes the messages he gives us are very, very challenging, aren't they? Question 16, what message does Jesus send to those he loves in Revelation 3.19? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So friends, if God loves us, he allows us to go through fiery trials, to stand in the fire. All of God's messages come with love. Jesus has only given the message of Daniel 7 because he loves you and he loves me and he loves everyone in the world. Our final question tonight for this part of the lesson, do you respond to Jesus' loving appeal and heed the warning about the little horn power? I hope you've written an answer in the affirmative there tonight. All right, let's go to our theme questions. Who did the beast represent in Daniel 7? The beast represent kings or kingdoms. Then question number two, where does the little horn power come from? It arises from the fourth beast, which is pagan Rome, and then papal Rome actually follows pagan Rome. Who is the first beast of Revelation 13? This beast is identified by nine points of identification that we're about to go through in the uh, exhibit to be the Church of Rome. Is this a message directed to RCs? The Bible warns versus the system and not individuals. So no, the Bible warns about a system, not individuals, and God calls those individuals out as they gain a knowledge of his word and his amazing truth. What's the main point of Daniel 7? There might be many, but Daniel 7 warns that the little horn power change God's times and laws and that that is a really big deal in heaven. So in a moment, we're going to go through this, but firstly, we're going to do our quiz. So then please write on your quiz envelopes. Great to have all the kids doing the quiz and some of the adults are doing as well. And last count, many of you have 40 points up already.
All right, Prophecy Seminar Lesson 9, let's go. The response questions tonight. If this lesson was clear to you and you understand that the little horn of Daniel 7 is the papal system, would you please place a tick in box number one? Question two, if deep in your heart you feel that you do not want to be deceived by this power and that you want to heed the warning God has sent in Daniel 7, would you place a tick in box number two? Thank you so much for even those not doing the formal quiz with the pen and paper for answering those questions in your heart. We have five question quiz questions tonight. Number one, the little horn of Daniel 7 has not yet come. Is that true or false? Is that what we learned tonight? The little horn of Daniel 7 has not yet come? Well, if it hasn't yet come, how do we identify it? Number two, the little horn of Daniel 7 refers to a religious power that mixes paganism with Christianity. True or false? Question three, one of the most daring claims the little horn power is that it thinks it can change God's law. True or false? Number four, the little horn of Daniel 7 and the beast of Revelation 13 refer to the same power. True or false? Number five, the number 666 refers to a literal number to be written or stamped on everyone's forehead in the last days. Is that true or false? I don't remember us studying that or finding that in scripture tonight. Friends, let's go through our answers quickly tonight. The little horn of Daniel 7 has not yet come. That is false. It has already arisen among the 10 horns of Europe. Number two, little horn of Daniel 7 refers to religious power that mixes paganism with Christianity. Yes, that is true. One of those daring claims of the LHP is that it thinks it can change God's law. It intends or thinks it changed it. God's law and God's times. Number four, the LHP of Daniel 7 and the beast of Revelation 13, the first beast of Revelation 13, because there's two, refer to the same power. That is true. And finally, the number 666 refers to a literal number to be written on everyone's forehead in the last days. The Bible does not make such a statement about a literal number chiseled into somebody's forehead. There's our answers. Would you give yourself a score out of five? And I wonder how many of those of you who were just doing that mentally, how you went tonight. I'm sure many of you got five out of five. Friends, in our Wall of Truth in the Prophecy Seminar tonight, we looked at... Um, Daniel chapter 7, where the little horn power attacks God's people. And so we have now completed nine lessons. Notice we're building a wall of truth. Can I make sure that I emphasize to you tonight that for Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 10 next week, entitled, Can the Little Horn Change God's Law? That you spend time in that lesson before we meet. So tonight we are learning the identity of the little horn power. I'm reading at the top of the blue exhibit. The points of identification examined in this lesson from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 make it clear that this little horn power would arise in Western Europe after the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire. Here we are in our exhibit. We're looking at the identity of the little horn. And there are seven points. Firstly, it's identified by scripture as saying it would mix paganism with Christianity. Point number two, it would command people to worship it. Therefore, it must be a religious power. Point number three, it would persecute those who disagreed with it. Point number four, it would blaspheme the God of heaven. 
Point number five, it would rain for 1260 years. Point number six, it would receive a deadly wound and recover from it and then have all the world worship it once again. That's incredible. And so it lives, it dies, and then it's resurrected. Is that familiar? It's a counterfeit movement, isn't it? Point number seven, its boldest claim would be that it had what? Changed the times and the law. Whose times and whose law? Well, it's obviously God's times and God's law. Friends, I want you now to look on the screen. This is not in the lesson. I'm now going to go into 10 points. Well, some of them are, but not all of them are. So the little horn power has 10 points and it has to fulfill every one of these points. So it arose out of the fourth beast in verses seven and eight. It arose amongst the 10 horns in verse eight. It arose after the 10 horns in verse 24. We're in Daniel seven here. It was different from the other horns, Daniel seven twenty-four. It was more solid than his fellows, verse 20. And then it uprooted three kingdoms in Daniel seven, uh, chapter seven, verses eight, 20 and 24. It spoke great words against the most high in verse 25. It wore out the saints of the most high, verse 25. It thought it could change God's times and laws, Daniel seven twenty-five, And it reigned for a time, times and half a time. I go to the note. We can take these marks of identification, go to any encyclopedia or a history book, examine the history of the dark ages when the Bible said this power would arise and we would discover there is only one power that meets every one of these identifying marks. That power is the papacy. Please remember that we are not talking about people who belong to this system. We're talking about a system that has arisen in opposition to God. There are many good sincere people in the papacy who love and serve Jesus. God loves them and in mercy he sent them this warning that they might not be deceived by this power. Friends, I want to tell you that God has called his shepherds to be faithful to this message. The preachers of today have been called to share why they are Protestant and to give a final last day warning message. This is not in the note. I'm just telling you that Friends, the people in Babylon who are in danger would want to know. They would be angry with us if in the day of judgment we did not tell them. They would ask us why we didn't tell them. And we might say, well, we didn't want you to be offended. We didn't want to hurt you. But friends, truth is about healing, not about hurting. And so can I remind you that truth is never in the majority? How many got on Noah's Ark out of all the millions on planet Earth? Just eight people, Mr. and Mrs. Noah, their three sons and wives. How many people got out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it was supposed to be four, but then Mrs. Lot turned around because she left something behind in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. What did she leave? Commentators say that she left behind her heart. Friends, truth is never in the majority. And so tonight, I want to tell you that this seminar is remarkable in sharing the identity of the little horn power. The note at the bottom of the exhibit on the first page says, let's re-examine the identifying marks of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. And let's see how clearly the papacy has met every one of these marks of identification. Friends, we're talking tonight that Babylon is a system, but it does not refer to the people who are caught up in Babylon. 
All right, we're going to go to Daniel's Marks of Identification. We're at the top of page two in our blue exhibit. We want to learn firstly, the first mark of identification is found in Daniel 7 and verse 8. Daniel wrote, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up amongst them. So we're trying to identify now, historically, who is the little horn power? It arose among the 10 divisions. So let's learn more about that. As the Roman Empire divided into 10 divisions, another power emerged as the unifying power among all the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire. That power was the who? The papacy, which just means the popes. No other power arose among the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire at that time. Let's have a look at a second mark of identification in Daniel 7 verse 8. Before whom, speaking of a little horn power, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So part B, it plucks up three horns. How did that happen in history? Listen up. As the papal power emerged among the 10 divisions of the Roman Empire, there were three powers that refused to submit to the Bishop of Rome. They were the Heruli, the Vandals and the Ostrogoths. To achieve full unity, the papacy encouraged armies to destroy these three powers. Indeed, these three horns were plucked up. The last of those powers, as you can see on the screen, the Ostrogoths were destroyed in AD 538, and then this power could reign supreme. The third mark of identification in Daniel 7, 8, and there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man. So this system has eyes like the eyes of a man. At the head of the papacy sits a man making the decisions that affect the lives and souls of thousands of people. Mm, interesting. Our fourth mark of identification, he had a mouth speaking pompous words in Daniel 7 and verse 8. It had a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Friends, he committed blasphemy and according to scripture, blasphemy consists of three things. The first thing is Daniel 5 indicated that it is blasphemy to mix together what? Paganism and Christianity. And so friends, as pagans came flooding into the church in those early centuries, the papacy changed the pure doctrines of early Christianity. It tried to make it easier for the pagans to adjust to Christianity by incorporating pagan practices into the Christian faith. For example, the pagans were used to worshipping gods and goddesses, whereas Christians worshipped only the one true God. I'm going to ask if any of you here tonight have been to the Vatican. Well, I would think that some of you have. So I'm going to ask you who this is. And some of you will say it's St. Peter with a halo on his head. But would you be shocked to know that this statue in the Vatican, this is the one that people believe is St. Peter, where they've lined up and kissed his foot and now his toes and part of his foot is smooth. This is not St. Peter. It is Jupiter, the Roman god Jupiter with the sundial, the sun on his head. But of course, what Rome did was the Church of Rome, it translated all the ancient gods and goddesses and baptized them and gave them Christian names. For example, the pagans were used to worshipping gods and goddesses, whereas Christians worshipped only one true God. Therefore, the church introduced the practice of praying to the saints. This took the place of the household gods of paganism, making it easier for those unconverted pagans who'd entered the church to adjust to Christianity. In addition, Christianity had no female deity, so the papacy elevated Mary 
to take the place of Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. There were many other pagan practices that Rome Christianized during this period. Friends, before we go to the top of page three, I have something special for you. I'm going to show you on the screen, please look carefully, how the Church of Rome apostatized and how it fell away from God's truth, how it moved away from the Ten Commandments and the faith of Jesus, that is the faith that Jesus had that is shown to us by the New Testament. How did the Church of Rome fall away from those great truths? Friends, the answer is that Rome would depend on what it had always done. And what it had always done and what actions it took have been called tradition. Let's have a look at the descent from truth into error. In 321 AD, the Church of Rome instituted a Sunday law, changing the day of worship from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. In 325, a uh, Babylonian goddess Ishtar's feast was then brought into the church and it was baptized and recalled and known today as Easter. Ishtar became Easter. In 336, the birthday of the Babylonian sun god Tammuz was celebrated in a mass which later became the Mass of Christ, even though it was the birthday of the Babylonian sun god Tammuz in December 25. It's interesting today that that pagan feast is known as, let all the people say, Christmas. In 376 AD, the Pope became Pontifus Maximus from the Babylonian cult to do with the dark arts and spiritualism. In 381, Mary was worshipped in place of Ishtar. In 384, Saturday was declared to be an enforced workday and people were not allowed to worship God on the seventh day of the week. In 416, infant baptism became compulsory. In 500, the burning of incense that took place in the pagan temples to the pagan gods was now brought into the Church of Rome. In 519, the Babylonian practice of Lent was brought into the church. In 700, Easter eggs were instituted with all their fertility rites and uh, all to do with the sexual rituals that was all brought into God's church. In 787, the worship of images and saints in pagan temples was brought into the Church of Rome. In 831, the doctrine of transubstantiation was brought in. That's the belief that the priest could turn the wafer into the actual body of Christ and the wine into the actual blood of Christ. In actual fact, the priest became the creator of his creator. In 1123, they brought in the celibacy of priests. In 1215, there was the annual confession to priests. And so attention was directed away from confessing to God, as the Bible says, and to Jesus, but towards the priests. In 1229, Bible reading by laymen was forbidden. The Bibles were written in Latin. They were chained to the desks of pulpits in churches and laymen had to just rely on what the priest told them was the truth of God because they could not read scripture for themselves. How blessed are we? Most homes have at least one Bible. Some have half a dozen. The big question tonight is how many homes are reading God's word, including us tonight? In 1229, the Pope claimed supremacy over all rulers. That's a big call, isn't it? But the Pope did rule and reign in Europe. 
and there was one ruler who was made to stand out in the snow for a number of days because he had displeased the Pope. When he went to visit the Pope, he was made to stand out in the snow. 1439, purgatory became a dogma that you would go to a place called purgatory or where hell would uh, burn all the sin out of you and uh, then you could go to heaven. In 1545, tradition was declared equal to the Bible. Now, this is absolutely incredible. How is this possible? Could tradition be declared equal to the Bible? Well, we'd need a quote on that. So let's find a quote on it. This is a quote from the Church of Rome. Like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Holy Bible and divine tradition. Wait a minute. Rome says there's two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, from heaven. There's number one the Holy Bible, and then there's something else called divine tradition. It says that both contain the word of God. Hmm. Both are full of precious jewels of revealed truths. Though these two divine streams are in themselves on account of their divine origin of equal sacredness and both full of revealed truths, still of the two, tradition is to us more safe and clear or more clear and safe. The author there is Catholic Joseph R. De Bruno, Catholic Belief, fifth edition. Friends, this is telling us that God's word is one of the divine streams, but divine tradition is then placed on top of it. And so God's word is read through the glasses of divine tradition. And so God's word is changed. It is fundamentally changed by this approach. And so tradition has become more important than God's word, the Bible. That is a huge, huge development by the Church of Rome. In 1870, in this falling away from the truth, the absolute infallibility of the Pope was proclaimed. And then in 1965, Mary was declared the mother of God. Friends, there are many more of these that we could share, but here is a summary of how the Church of Rome fell away from the truth. And the point was at the bottom of page two, there were many other pagan practices that Rome Christianized during this period. Let's go to the top of page three. We are told in various ways by Eusebius that Constantine, that's the Emperor Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accomplished, they'd been accustomed in their own. It is not necessary to go into a subject which the diligence of Protestant writers has made familiar to most of us. The use of temples and these dedicated to particular saints, ornamented on occasions with branches of trees, incense, lamps, candles, votive offerings on recovery from illness, there's holy water, asylums, holy days and seasons, use of calendars, processions, blessings on the fields, sacerdotal vestments, the tonsure, even the ring in marriage, turning to the east, images at a later date. Perhaps the ecclesiastical chant and the Kyrie Eleeson are all of pagan origin and sanctified by their adoption in to the Church of Rome. That's quoted by John Henry Cardinal Newman 
His book was an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, 1920, published in London, page 373. Friends, perhaps the motive was good. The motive might have been good that the Church of Rome wanted to evangelize people and bring them into the church. But people will never leave their gods behind. And so these people wanted to bring their gods with them. So what Rome did was it baptized and Christianized their gods and gave them Christian names. Friends, if the motive was good, the methodology was bad because it mixed together two things that never should be mixed, and that is paganism with Christianity. Friends, if you mix error or paganism at only 10% with 90% truth, you still end up with error. But it's a deadly drink because it will lead to people being spiritually deceived. All right, the second point on blasphemy. We're looking at three examples of blasphemy or halfway down page three. In Mark chapter two, verse seven, it says, is for a man, a blasphemy is for a man to claim that he can forgive sins. Notice the claim of the papacy to be able to forgive men their sins. Now I'm going to read three quotes out of a book, Duties and Dignities of the Priest. And these are photographs that I took in a a church in Rome a number of years ago. I think the year was 2003. Liguri, in Dignities and Judities of a Priest, page 27, wrote this, And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest, and either not to pardon or to pardon, according as they refuse to give absolution, provided the penitent is capable of it. Wow, what an amazing statement. A second statement, were the Redeemer to descend into a church and sit in a confessional to administer the sacrament of penance and a priest to sit in a confessional, Jesus would say over each penitent, ego te absolvo. The priest would likewise say over each of his penitents, ego te absolvo. And the penitents of each would be equally absolved. Those words merely mean that I forgive you. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are absolved from your sin. Thirdly, the priest holds the place of the Savior himself when by saying ego te absolvo, he absolves from sins. Friends, this is incredible. Of course, none of this is ordered by scripture. What does scripture say? Who should we confess our sins to? In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, for there is one God and what? One mediator. There's only one God and only one mediator between God and men. And that is the man Christ Jesus, who is the son of God. You and I are asked by scripture to confess our sins to Jesus Christ. Not to any man, not to any woman, but to the son of God. Jesus is God's son and he's the one who should hear our prayers as we confess our sins. There's a third example of blasphemy by the Church of Rome. In John 10.33, Jesus tells us is blasphemy is to claim the prerogatives of God, to claim the powers and duties and rules of God. Hence, priests are called the parents of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? I'm going to read it again. This is from the book that we're just reading from, Dignities and Duties of a Priest. 
by Liguri. This is page 32. Hence, priests are called the parents of Jesus Christ. Such is the title that St. Bernard gives them, for they are the active cause by which he is made to exist really in the consecrated host. So, friends, here is how the priest becomes the creator of his creator. And so here's a photograph that I took in the church in Rome, the Church of Rome in Rome. And you'll notice there those chains are said to be St. Peter's actual chains in the Church of St. Peter and the chains in Rome. Join me at the top of page four. Thus the priest may, quoting from the book again, in a certain manner be called the creator of his creator. Friends, that's a blasphemy. I read on, since by saying the words of consecration, he creates, as it were, Jesus in the sacrament. End of quote. Another one. All names which in the scripture are applied to Christ by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. Taken from the book on the authority of Council 1619 edition, book 2, chapter 17. Another quote from the great encyclical Letters of Leo, page 304, book 13. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Friends, that's a big call, isn't it? That's a big call. Secondly, thou art the shepherd, thou art the physician, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. Finally, thou art another God on earth. That's taken from Christopher Marcellus, Oration of the Fifth Lateran Council, Session 4 um, and Column 761. Friends, I have another three quotes. By the way, this is Pope John Paul I. Many people don't even know this Pope because he was inaugurated and then he died very, very suddenly, just in a number of weeks. And then the great man, John Paul II, took over. So this is John Paul I. Here are three titles of the Pope from the Church of Rome. The Pope is of so great a dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the Vicar of God. Hmm. Another one. He is likewise the Pope, the divine monarch and supreme emperor and king of kings. Some of you might be distressed by that because, friends, you know that king of kings is a reference to the name of Jesus in the book of Revelation. A third one. Hence, the Pope is crowned with a triple crown. Why a triple crown? As king of heaven and king of earth and also he's king of the lower regions. That's quoted from Lucius Ferraris in Prompta Bibliotecra, volume six, article Papa number two. When one examines the Roman Catholic quotation cited, there can be no question that the papacy has spoken, as the scripture said, great words or pompous words against the Most High, has blasphemed God and combined paganism with Christianity. We hurry on. Our point number E, Daniel's marks of identification. In Daniel 7.21, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Did the Church of Rome make war with the saints? Friends, you might be shocked to know that more people were killed by the papacy during the Dark Ages, 538 to 1798, than by Hitler in World War II, where six million were killed. Six million Jews were killed, and that was two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. That was an outcry. That was a travesty. What about the Church of Rome? 
Let me read to you from The History of the Rise and Influence of Rationalism in Europe, Volume 2, page 32, by author W.E.H. Leckie, L-E-C-K-Y. I quote, That the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution has that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. Friends, how many people? The answer is 50 million people were killed. Let's go to point number F. And he shall think or intend to change God's times and laws. We're asking the question, did the Church of Rome think to change God's times and laws? We're going to look at that next week in Can the Little Horn Change God's Times and Laws? The next two lessons will detail how the Church of Rome has accomplished this. I have a quote that's not in your lesson. Have a look on the screen. The Pope has power to change times and to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. The precepts of Christ are even the laws of Christ. So friends, can you see how powerful the Pope is? He's another God on earth, that he has power to change God's times, to uh, do away with God's laws, even the laws of Christ. That shows the power that he has. Our next one is Daniel 7.25. We're looking at Daniel's marks of identification. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Did the Church of Rome ever reign for exactly 1260 years? Please look at the screen. History says yes. The papacy had established its power in AD 538 when the last of the three powers was subdued. There they are on the screen. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. The decree of Justinian making the popes the head of the church and the corrector of heretics issued in AD 533 took effect in AD 538, when no power stood in the way of the pope having full supremacy. Exactly 1260 years later, listen up, in 1798, Berthier, the French general under Napoleon, invaded the Vatican City and took the Pope prisoner, ending the temporal sovereignty of the Pope. So his long reign lasted how long? The answer is 1260 years. This is the record of history and can't be undone. We've got to ask, did any other power on earth, could any other power on earth have lasted for that long? one single power, one single reign. The Church of Rome fits the specifications for 1260 days or years from 538 to 1798 AD. Let's now quickly switch into the identification marks from Revelation. We're in Revelation 13 and verse 2. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. Did the Church of Rome receive its power seat and great authority from the dragon? The dragon primarily represents Satan, see Revelation 12.9. However, the devil works through various agencies, in this case, pagan Rome. The Roman emperors moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, thereby leaving the Pope the chief power in the West. They put the power of the Caesars behind the Bishop of Rome, thereby elevating him above all the other bishops in Christianity. 
Truly, pagan Rome gave the papacy his power, seat, and great authority. I've got to read the quote on the screen. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs of Rome. So the popes followed on from the Caesars when Rome fell. When the emperor Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the chief vicar of the court of Rome. He gave his seat to the bishop of Rome, that is the pontiff. That's from Labianca, professor of history from the University of Rome. That's his quote. Another identification mark, the second one from the book of Revelation in Revelation 13, 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally what? Wounded. I've got to ask now, did the Church of Rome ever receive a deadly wound? What a good question. When General Berthier, the French general leader, took the Pope prisoner in 1798, he inflicted the deadly wound. Many thought the papacy had come to its end and would never recover. Indeed, it had received a deadly wound. Friends, if you have your uh, pen handy, you might like to write down the date. The actual date was the Church of Rome's power ended in February 15, the 15th of the 2nd of 1798. The third identification mark from the book of Revelation in Revelation 13, 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was what? I can almost hear you calling out healed. Did the Church of Rome have a deadly wound that was healed? Please look at the screen. In 1929, Mussolini once again restored the Vatican to the Pope, making him again a secular as well as a religious ruler. All right, I'm going to pause there. I'm at the bottom of page five in the blue exhibit. What's the story going on here? Friends, I want to tell you that the last time I visited the city of Rome, this is an envelope that was posted in Vatican City. Are you aware that the Vatican occupies 108.7 acres exactly and is a city within a city? If you were to commit a crime in the city of Rome, based in the country of Italy, murder someone and run in through the front gates of the Vatican and into the Sistine Chapel or somewhere, then the Italian police cannot come in and arrest you because you are in another country. Have a look at this envelope. It's stamped Sitia del Vaticano. Sitia del Vaticano. So friends, how did the Church of Rome get its power back? This is what the paper said. This is the San Francisco Chronicle, February 11, 1929. The Roman question. What's the Roman question? The Roman question was, was the Church of Rome going to get her power back? And would Mussolini be the man to do that? Well, he did. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. That's the government of Italy, Mussolini. In affixing the autographs, it means their signatures to the memorable document. Oh, what does it say? It uses biblical terminology. It says that they were what? They were healing the wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Isn't that incredible? I read the note at the bottom of page five. Please look at the screen. In 1929, Mussolini once again restored the Vatican to the Pope, making him again a secular as well as a religious ruler. So friends, from 1798 to 1929, is pretty much nearly 130 years. Isn't that amazing? 1798 to 1929, Rome 
had died and was buried for nearly 130 years. Today, the Vatican is recognized by many governments on earth. Even the United States of America sends an ambassador to the Vatican, recognizing the Vatican state, which is a country, as a secular as well as a religious state. And by the way, it was Ronald Reagan who reinstated Protestant America having a ambassador with them from the Pope and them to have an ambassador in the Vatican. As one observes the developing papacy today, one sees indeed the whole world wondering after this power, the papacy has gained worldwide influence, prestige and prominence. Well, friends, we're on the home run. We're at the top of page six, our last page tonight. Thank you for your patience and thank you for your endurance. Let's have a look at our identification mark from Revelation, Revelation 13, four, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? The question tonight is, do people worship this power? One only has to watch the acts of obeisance that people pay to the head of the papacy, the popes, to know that this power is an object of reverence and worship and always has been. During his 1260 year reign, few earthly governments dared defy this power because the Pope has always held the keys to life and death and during the dark ages 538 to 1798, held the keys of life and death for thousands of individuals who were burned at the stake. Another identification mark for the first beast of Revelation 13, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Did the Church of Rome speak great words and great blasphemies? Well, let's have a look at some of the titles of the Pope, some more. He's called our Lord God, the Pope. He's called the Vicar of Jesus Christ. That means he's the high priest of Jesus. What does the scripture say about God's names? Is God's names holy and sacred? Jesus said in Matthew 23, 9, and call no man father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. This text, in this text, Jesus is not saying that we can't call our father's dad or our dad's father. It's talking about calling earthly men after our father in heaven, for there is only one father and that's our heavenly father. In John 17, 11, Jesus is praying a beautiful prayer to the heavenly father before he goes to the cross and he says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. What does he call the Father in heaven? He calls him Holy Father. This is not to be applied to any man on earth. In Psalm 111 verse 9, David writes, He sent redemption unto his people. Holy and reverent is his name. I remember once the police pulled me over and I was a young minister and I had rev on my license as in reverend. And the policeman said to me, aha, uh -huh, I notice that you are rev by name and rev by nature. And after that time, I discovered this text and I never again had rev or reverend on my license. Why is that friends? Because the third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Holy and reverend is whose name? His name. Let's be very careful about breaking the third commandment. Friends, here is another great word and blasphemy. This is absolutely incredible. This is a quote from the Church of Rome. 
the popes like Jesus are conceived by their mothers through the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. Hmm. All popes are a certain species of man-gods for the purpose of being the better able to conduct the functions of mediator between God and mankind. All powers in heaven and earth are given to them. End of quote. That was Stephanus V, a ninth century pope. Friends, we've been looking tonight and asking the question, did the Church of Rome use great words and blasphemy against the God of heaven? Remember again, there's only one God and only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Let us not blaspheme his name. All right, we're now asking in Revelation 13, 5, another identification mark, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Did the Church of Rome reign for 42 months? The legally recognized supremacy of the Pope began in 538 AD, when there went into effect a decree of the Emperor Justinian, making the Bishop of Rome head over what? All the churches, the definer of doctrine, and the corrector of heretics friends that is a very very powerful quote isn't it and so rome began its reign in 538 ad unopposed because the ostrogoths had then been done away with and reigned until 1798 i'd love to get into tonight how i have been uh, in europe there to the actual church where the pope uh, from 1798 uh, pius was buried and i'm going to go into that in a future lesson Notice the time frames there with the 42 months, the time times and half a time and 1260 days. Friends, the identification fits perfectly. No other power can fit this 1260 years. This is the dark ages, the reign of terror of the Church of Rome over Europe. Our next identification point was it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. We're in Revelation 13, 7. We're looking at an identification mark from the book of Revelation for the first beast. And we're asking, did the Church of Rome ever make war with the saints? We've already covered this, but I want to give you a little bit more. Here's a quote from John Dowling, The History of Romanism, page 541-542. From the birth of popery, in other words, the popes, the papal system, to the present time, it is esteem, estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 millions, how much? More than 50 millions of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors, an average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery. So if you multiply 40,000 by 1260, you will find it comes to a little bit over 50 million people. Friends, this church made war with the saints. Next identification point, did all the world worship it? Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship the first beast. Do all the world worship him today? Friends, here is Pope Francis with the American president, the new American president at this time. This is Joseph Biden an ardent Roman Catholic who was inaugurated by a Jesuit priest at his recent inauguration as president. And yet the Church of Rome has always had a strong relationship. Here's Pope Paul VI with Lyndon B. Johnson. Then we have uh, John Paul II with George Bush 
Jr. Then we have, um, yeah, we have Pope Benedict the 16th with Mr. and Mrs. Obama, Michelle and uh, yeah, the president there. And then we have, of course, Francis with Joe Biden. So friends, um, this is really an important point that all the world has wondered after the beast. And our final point tonight, let him that have understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. Very, very important point. You've got to find before you identify the mark of the beast, who is the beast. It's the number of a man and his number is 600, three score and six. Does the church of Rome have a number that adds up to 666? Friends, let me share the note with you and then I have some amazing things to reveal. Notice that Revelation 13, 18 does not say the number 666 is written out. Rather, it says that to discover the number of the beast, one must count the number of the beast or add it up. An ancient custom was to use the Roman numeral system on people's names, adding up the various totals of the letters. That would then be the person's number. The Bible says the beast has a number and the numbers add up to 666. One of the official titles of the head of the Roman church in Latin is Vicarius Filii Dei, meaning Vicar of the Son of God. Please notice below that the numerical value of the letters of his name add up to a biblical 666. Friends, I've had people tell me this is just a coincidence. So let me share with you a few more coincidences you might not be aware of. So the titles for the Pope come from the Latin symbols. The Latin symbols or letters have values. So I is one, V is five, X is 10, L is 50, C is 100, D is 500, and M is 1000. You'll know this from the end of movies where the creation date of the movie is expressed as M, C, M, X, V, whatever. So the first title here is Vicar of the Son of God. This is a claim that the Pope is the high priest of Jesus as though he might forgive Jesus's sins. This is a very high-handed and blasphemous claim. The Pope is also known in Latin as the captain of the clergy. So in Roman numerals, dux clerai, you know dux means head, dux clerai, the D is 500, the U is 5, the X is 10, the C is 100, the L is 50, the E is nothing, the R is nothing, the I is 1. Interesting, isn't it? Another coincidence, captain of the clergy. The head of the clergy in Rome, the Pope, is 666. Here's another coincidence, another name for the Pope. He's the chief vicar of the court of Rome. He's the chief priest of the court of Rome. His Latin title is Ludo Vicious. Ludo Vicious or Ludo Vicus. I don't know, I'm not Italian. But I know that those letters add up to 666. The chief vicar of the court of Rome is the number of a man and his number would be 666. Here is the fourth identification. The name of the Italian church is only one Italian church, the Church of Rome. And in Greek, it's Italica Ecclesia. Italica Ecclesia. In other words, Italian church, that comes to 666. Is that another coincidence? Let's go to number five, Latin Kingdom. And so the Pope of Rome has Italy and the Vatican as their kingdom. And in Greek, Latin kingdom is written Helatine Basilia, 
You know, Basilea is the name for church. So this is Latin kingdom or Latin church. That happens to come to 666. What about this title for the Pope, Latin speaking or Latin man in the Greek? It comes to Latinos and Latinos also adds up to 666. Friends, that's six titles of the Pope or six titles involving the Church of Rome. Would you be interested to know the number for Satan? In the Greek, his name is Titan, T-E-I-T-A-N. The numbers are T is 300, E is 5, I is 10, T is 300, A is 1, and N is 50. That comes to 666. That should be no surprise. But what is a surprise, perhaps, is that it is the same number as this little horn power. In understanding 666, throughout Revelation, the number 7 represents what? Many of you know it means perfection or it means completeness. Well, the number six represents imperfection or sin. Remember that man was created on the sixth day and he sinned. And the seventh day, of course, was a perfect day in scripture. So I'm now asking you, what is the name for Jesus in the Greek? And I would think that many of you would say, I mean, it's logical, isn't it? That his number would be seven or some would say seven, seven, seven. The name of Jesus in the Greek is Iesus or Yesu. The I is J, J E S O U S. And so there we have the I is 10, the E is 8, the S is 200, the O is 70, the U is 400, the S is 200. And so Jesus' number is 888. Now, why would that be? Well, if we go back, the number six represents imperfection, the number seven represents perfection. So. Jesus' number could not be 777 because the scripture said in Philippians 2.9, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. Friends, the Chinese are very, very smart people. They're very smart in business. And you know what? They know numerology. And do you know what their favorite number is? They love to get a property that has the number eight. They consider it a lucky number. So whether a house number is eight or a property number is eight, they put eight on their number plates. The number eight to them is a very, very special number. So there is Jesus. His number is 888 because his name is above every other name and his name is even above perfection. Friends, I would like to thank you for staying with me tonight. It's been a long, long session. I think this is one of the longest sessions that we'll ever have, but I hope it's been interesting. I hope that you've found yourself powerfully in the word of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight again, we thank you for the miracle of grace that you've given us, that we have been able to present this program against all odds. Thank you for answering and hearing all of our prayers. Father, the truths of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 are very precious. But Father, it's a very sacred and solemn message. It's a message that calls us to come out of Babylon. Whatever false gods we're worshipping, whatever things that we're hanging on to that are more important to us than our Bibles and our relationship with Jesus, we want to give up tonight. And so, Father, we say tonight that we want to come out of Babylon. Whatever Babylon is for us, 
whatever mixture of paganism and Christianity it is, Father, tonight we say, take it away. Get us out of Babylon. Father, thank you so much for hearing and answering this prayer in every person's heart. Give us now the power and the will to do what you have asked us because we ask it in Jesus' precious and Jesus Christ of Nazareth's powerful name. To Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, to the glory of the Father, let every person say, Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, or one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.